Mac Power Users, Episode 128, Typography. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, along with David Sparks. Hey, David. Hi. Hi, Katie. I'm sitting on the edge of my seat today. You We're are. We're going to talk about type. Yes. We are going to talk about type. And the type has been a very basic, integral part of the Mac ever since the original Macintosh came. You know, Steve Jobs believed uh, very strongly that type should be deeply ingrained into the Mac. And it's been a part of our lives for such a long time. We've just really taken it for granted. But there is such a huge world out there when you get into studying typography. And we don't know. We just know very, very little about typography. So we decided to bring an expert and we're pleased to welcome Ina Stoltz to the show. Welcome, Ina. Ina Saltz. Saltz. I'm so sorry. Saltz. Ina Saltz to the show. I'm looking right at it so I wouldn't mispronounce it. And I did Thank anyway. you very much. I'm very happy to be here. I love to talk about type. Yeah. Now, Ina is, um, if you don't know, she's a, she's a professor at the City College of New York, but she's, she's written several books about typography. Um, both um reference style. I mean, one of them is typography referenced. And I know, Ina, you were on a, a group of people that wrote that book, but it's what you were saying. It's like one of the top 11 reference books in the world in any subject. Is that? Well, yes. The American Library Association uh, handpicks a list once a year of the top reference books that have been published in that year. And this was one of 11 across all subject matter. That's, yes, and this that's, is- that's really amazing. Right. And, and you've and, got a couple of books out. We'll, we'll put links to them in the show notes, but Typography Essentials is one of them. Um, and then you've also got Principles, uh, 100 Design Principles for Working with Your Type. Um, is, is that's, prob- that's, the, that's, that's the, the same book. That's the same book? Okay. <laughs> yeah. And I've also written essays in a lot of different books on typo- typographic topics, obviously. And, uh, and I, But I'm also very well known worldwide for body type um, intimate messages etched in flesh, which is about typographic tattoos and also body type two, more typographic tattoos. So these are tattoos right. that are composed of letters, words, or entire passages of text. No images, just words and letters. And do you cover like foreign words and phrases too? I do, but not other alphabetic systems I because I am only an expert in Western Latin forms. So, yes, French, Spanish, Italian, of course, but sure. not Arabic or Asian characters because I, I, am, I can't look at them and judge whether they're well done or even what they say. So I decided to confine it to Western letter forms. Yeah. Well, well, you know, I, I never I have, really realized that was a thing, David, until we met up with LeVar Burton at Macworld. It was one of the first – uh, one of the earlier Macworlds a couple of years ago. And he's got a really interesting tattoo that if you look at it one way, it says LeVar, and if you look at it the other way, it says Kunta because that was one of his first roles. Ah, that is called an, an – that's, that's, that, that is an asymmetrical ambigram that there are people who specialize in designing those and some it can be a word that reads the same upside down or backwards or it can be a mirror image ambigram there are a whole bunch of uh, different kinds of ambigrams i have a whole chapter on those they're absolutely fascinating and it takes tremendous skill to actually make those happen yeah i bet but you know i know where i i had heard of you but when i really 
grew to love you was uh, <laughs> when you did this fantastic series for lynda.com called Typography Essentials. And it's like two and a half hours. of. It's just, called Foundations of Typography. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. I'm really screwing this up today, aren't I? <laughs> it's okay. I'm here to fix it. <laughs> okay, good. Well, it's called Foundations of Typography. It's part of the lynda.com series. And it's about two and a half hours. And it's just fantastic. Uh, Ina explains many things about typography that I didn't understand and they've got these great visuals on the screen while she's talking and if you really want to get into this stuff even just sign up for Linda for just one month it's totally worth the tuition but uh, I think what we wanted to do with this show is, is give people kind of a basic in in typography because I think a lot of Mac users are really interested in this and some of them are really really smart about it I mean like I don't know if you're aware of John Gruber, but he's always putting stuff about typography up at Daring Fireball. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, of Mac bloggers and writers who are really interested in this. So I thought it would be fun to, to talk about the basics. And, you know, because it always comes back to me, right? I, I wanted to talk a little bit first about my introduction to typography because I had never even thought of it. I mean, to me, computers had the font that was in the printer and, you know, you type and you print it. And because I use like Apple IIs and, you know, Ataris and IBMs for years and years. And then one day I got a Mac and I opened it up and it had this, this um, entry called fonts. And I didn't even know what that meant. You know, I never heard of the word fonts before. And I clicked it and there was this amazing assortment of fonts. And I know now they look horrendous. I mean, I remember, everybody remember Chicago and um, the various Mac fonts. But I, I thought it was amazing, and I, I abused them so terribly for the first, like, year or two. <laughs> yeah, I did, too. Well, we you did. know, even if you don't have any formal training in typography, even a layperson like yourself who's just observant can notice that type the shapes of the letters themselves have a personality and characteristics that change the message that when you look at a message in one typeface and you look at that same message in another typeface it's clear that it has a different feeling about it you may not know why it has a different feeling but you have an immediate sense that something is different so that gives you a sense of power and control over your message if you know what you're doing if you want to try to have a message that has extra emphasis, extra power, that extra um, frisson that gives the viewer a, a sense of what you're trying to say, but in a better way, that's the power of type. Yeah, and see, I was in college using the San Francisco typeface on the original Mac. Which, <laughs> oh, it's awful. <laughs> yeah, which surprises me that I even made it through college when I look back <laughs> at that, how... What a, a remarkable lack of judgment I had. <laughs> well, sometimes you do it because the teacher says your paper has to be so many pages. So you figure if you can tweak the type a little bit, you can get one that's a little bit bigger. Yeah, well, San Francisco was like their ransom note font. Yeah, and it, I know. It, it was It was terrible. I look at it now and I just cringe. But, but it, you're right. I mean, I, I do think that um, when we are in the business of conveying ideas – um, the words are really important. The images, the layout is really important. But the typeface, I think, also plays a role in conveying that image. And, uh, and sometimes you, it's subtle. Sometimes you don't realize what is it that's giving me this feeling, but you just look at, at two things that are, are both well-designed, you know, two web pages or two brochures or whatever it is. We're doing this when our firm, we're, we're going through a, a redesign and we're redoing a web page and redoing some other elements. And it, it's it type makes such a big difference. And sometimes you can't quite put your finger on what it is, but it does. You know, 
the New York Times.com recently did a fascinating two part series. The first part was a scientifically accurate uh, experiment to try to figure out what typeface was the most believable, most trustworthy. In other words, if a message was written in that in a typeface, what typeface would give the idea to the most people that that message was actually true? I found this absolutely fascinating. Um, it okay. was a very controlled experiment. There were only five typefaces, and since, since one of them was Comic Sans, oh, you can just drop you can just drop that out yeah. immediately. But interestingly, the winner was Baskerville, and hmm. that, then they followed that. So, in other words, if you had a message that was written in Baskerville, uh, people would tend to believe that more than they would other typefaces. Well, Is, isn't that interesting? Well, you know, it it's kind of funny because my uh, field guides, the, the self-published books I write, mm-hmm. Baskerville, Baskerville. Ah, there you go. Always. There you go. Yeah, but the, but I, I received an email from an attorney, my day job, I'm an attorney, the, um, and it was written in Comic Sans. He wrote me like oh, a very... Oh, and, and, and immediately it's like, I'm like, really? I didn't even take the guy seriously. It, so it, it does have an effect. And it's probably misleading. This attorney could be really smart and be writing some great stuff. But just the fact that he used Comic Sans at a certain level, just, I don't know. It's, Showed a lack of judgment. Yeah, exactly. Many, many years ago, before I went into the legal profession, I worked for a publishing company that happened to publish school yearbooks. And, and as you can imagine, when you're dealing with teenagers and preteens, that they love to see how many fonts do they have on their computer? How many fonts can they possibly use in their publication? Because more has got to be better, right? I mean, I'm sure. laughing because sure. I'm laughing because that is the most common beginner mistake is to use too many typefaces. Yes. So we actually printed up stickers that said, just say no to comic stands, you know, with Sans, a big yeah. comic stands with a big slash through it. And, and yeah. distribute them. Don't ever, ever, ever use this font again. <laughs> well, there is actually a font that was designed in response to the common revulsion of Comic Sans, and that is called Comic Serif. And it is a free font, and it's very—it's really nice. You should check it out. Also, there are type uh, websites devoted to the hatred of Comic Sans. One is called BanComicSans.com, and one I think is called IHateComicSans.com. So, yes, in the vast spectrum of typefaces, Comic Sans has earned the distinction of the most reviled typeface <laughs> amongst the typographic cog- cognoscenti, if you will, and, and even perhaps among those who are not. Now, I understand well, you have another on your hit list. Is it Papyrus? Well, oh, let's yes. get there later. Let's oh, get there later. Okay. I want to talk about the basics. Well, you know, you've opened the can. Let's go there. Papyrus. Okay. <laughs> but, but really quick on Comic Sans, um, there is a an application on the Mac. I want to say it's Sublime Text, but I'm not certain. And what they do is it's a, you know, they give you a 30-day period test period with the application. And after 30 days, if you don't buy it, they just turn every font to Comic Sans. Ah! <laughs> that's punishment. Yeah, and I think it works. I think that's sublime text. I should have known that before we started. But anyway, okay, so let's go on to Papyrus since we're beating up fonts right now. Well, <clears throat> Papyrus was never a graceful, beautiful typeface. It, it, is a, it sort of attempts to emulate or give the effect of, I don't know, Egyptian hieroglyphics. It has a uh, distressed feel about it, meaning something like a distressed wood, you know. Um, it's very thin and attenuated. And for some reason, 
Cameron, um, James Cameron, who directed uh, Avatar, decided that papyrus would be the perfect font for the logo of of a $400 million movie and for the uh, subtitles, which would have to be read over complex backgrounds. I really hope he made that decision. He didn't pay somebody to make that decision for him. Well, uh, whatever, if he, whoever made that decision, it was a horrible decision. Let's just start with the subtitles. Because it is thin and distressed, meaning it has like little chunks taken out of it, it doesn't hold up against a, a variety of backgrounds. Subtitles have to work. Uh, are, are, it's one of the hardest things is to create subtitles that will work against black, white, every color, complex textures. It has to be readable at at the bottom of the screen. Papyrus is singularly ill-suited for that. Um, And so that's for starters. And also just as a signifier of the movie's personality, it's so pervasive and it's, it's just so wrong for that movie. It, it, it just doesn't feel high tech. It, um, and, and also, immediately after that movie came out, I will tell you that a community of type of gr- people who love type started firing off angry uh, messages about, didn't he even think, I mean, he has a $400, $400 million budget and he couldn't spend yeah. a few dollars to commission a unique proprietary typeface that was just for this movie. Yeah, they now, wrote a language for the movie. Right, they, they wrote they, a language, but they didn't. They didn't they picked a typeface out of the box that's extremely common and mostly often misused, and that's what they used. Yeah. So, uh, anyway. Yeah, I mean, they, 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 they brought in a linguist to write a language, but for the font, Microsoft Word. Yeah. <laughs> sort of like that, yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. It, you know, I, I remember that. It was difficult to read that, and that's one of the issues we're going to talk about. So I guess we should get into it. But, but before we do that, Katie, let's talk about a, a sponsor real quick. Yeah, let's talk about our first sponsor for this episode, and that is 1Password. And we've talked a lot about 1Password on past episodes of of Mac Power users, but really we just had another incident recently that highlights the reason for why you want to use strong, unique passwords across all of your different sites. So you don't want to repeat the same password over and over and over again across different sites because you're just asking for trouble. Now, of course, everybody says that's become such a pain. I can't remember all of these unique passwords. I've got probably dozens, if not at this point, hundreds of different websites that I log into regularly. And that's where 1Password comes into play because all you have to do is remember your 1Password master password and 1Password will do the rest. It will remember and log all of your other passwords to all of your other sites it will randomly generate and create these unique, strong passwords for you. I don't know what any of the passwords are to any of my sites because they're all stored within 1Password. And then using the multiple extensions that are available for all of the major different web browsers out there, it will automatically fill in those passwords, whether it's on your Mac, whether it's on your PC, whether it's using the 1Password app on your iPhone or your iPad. And all of this magically syncs back behind the scenes in Dropbox. So all of your passwords are everywhere when you need it. And I wanted to share a tip this week because we just had another incident where Evernote, my beloved Evernote, with one of our favorite services, just uh, did a master password reset across all of their devices and all of their accounts because they found out that their passwords were compromised. And they sent out a notice and everybody had to log in and change their passwords. Well, if you are practicing good password techniques and are using unique passwords across all of your sites, that's not a huge deal. You go in, you change your password, you log it with one password, and you're done. But maybe you didn't. Maybe you're using that same password across multiple sites. 
Well, there's a really easy way in 1Password to find duplicate passwords for your logins. First, 1Password has the ability to search by password. So if you know what that bad password is or that compromised password is, you can search by password and see a list of all the sites where you've reused that password. Or the other thing you can do is you can set up a smart folder within 1Password and you can use as the search criteria for that smart folder the compromised password or if you want to see where you've used the same email address and that compromised password. So now you can set up a smart folder. Maybe you've got a lot of work to do. Maybe you've got a lot of entries in that smart folder and you can start logging in and ticking them off one by one, uh, going in and changing those passwords to make sure that other services aren't compromised. So you can find more information about 1Password over at onepassword.com. And we want to thank the folks at 1Password for their support of the show. Hey, and let me throw one more tip in for 1Password. If you're trying to show it to your friends and get them to understand why it's important and you don't want to show them your data, uh, in the new version 4, they have a demo mode. And uh, you, you enable it in the settings, and then you use the password for 1Password of demo, D-E-M-O, and it's got a, a dummy set of data in there. So you, I was just showing someone this the other day, and I didn't want to give them all my details. Uh, there's, a, there's a great way to help people uh, find the way to uh, password bliss. There you go. Hey, um, so let's go back. We've, we've had some fun with, uh, with Comic Sans and, and Papyrus, which is pretty easy. <laughs> and, uh, but I'd like to talk a little bit about just the basics of font. And you know, to me, there's, there's really you know, the, the distinction between a serif and a sans serif font. You know, I remember when I was in, I think it was high school Latin, learning the word sans means without. That's right. That's from the French sans. Oh, is it? Uh, okay. Yes. And um, so, so that, that's the easiest way to remember. You know, a serif font is the one with… With serifs. Exactly. <laughs> with little <laughs> feet. Serif means yeah. feet, the little, right? The little feet, or the, that's, uh, doesn't mean little feet, but people often call it that just, to, or little extenders, the little parts that stick out beyond the, the stem of the letters. So, yes. And sans serif, they don't have those little feet. So. I, I, I feel like I had a, an aha moment about this because I do a little woodworking in addition to the other stuff I do. And occasionally I need to chisel words into a... Um, piece of wood that's really hard to do at the end points and and i always add serifs at the bottom because that way you can really clean it up nicely at the bottom and i got thinking this must be where this started i mean the romans or whoever started writing these typefaces realized that if you're chiseling into stone you need something at the bottom well, there are a lot. It's interesting that you would bring that up. There are a lot of theories about this, and uh, there are entire books uh, from paleontologists, as you might uh, imagine. Uh, Dr. Edward Kadich, uh, out at the University of Iowa, uh, proposed that indeed that those serifs were brush lettered onto. Uh, onto stone and that the chisel edge was used that the serifs came out of the the broad edged the action of the broad edged brush which was used to finish off the stroke so you know it's which came first the chicken or the egg but yes serif typefaces existed for many hundreds of years before sans serifs uh, came about although sans serifs come 
a lot earlier than most people realize. It's really around the uh, turn of the 18th century rather than as late as the 20th century as, as people may think. But, you know, we could go, this is not the place to go deeply into type history, but you yeah. are right. The broad distinction between type that has serifs and type that doesn't have serifs is the broadest kind of type categorization. So, although there are a lot of tricky little things like hybrids and some typefaces that have serifs on some of the letters and not other of the letters, most typefaces can be broadly characterized as serif or sans serif. And then within those categorizations, history uh, as history evolved and as letter forms evolved, there are subsets of categories. Yes. Yeah, and this is one thing I thought you did brilliantly in your lynda.com series because you went through, for instance, with the serif fonts. Um, I believe you had talked about three or four different categories that I didn't even realize existed. But once I watched it, it made a lot of sense to me. Like, for instance, the modern style, which is the one with, uh, I believe, rounder and I guess is that the I guess is that the sans serif is the modern one with the round. Uh, well, you're going to have to go back to the course, David. Oh, it's geometric sans serifs. In other words, the, yeah. the, within the sans serif category, geometrics came in in the at the point of time where modernism was sweeping in the 20s. So they are based on the circle, the square, and the triangle. I'm not sure if that's what you were referring yeah, to, but modern in, in um, serif terms means actually typefaces that have completely horizontal serifs, very thin serifs compared to the stem or the main weight or spine of the letters, and that there's a very sharp distinction between the narrowness of the serifs and the weight, the vertical weight. So the proportions of the letters, the shapes of the serifs, the angles of the serifs, uh, all kinds of letter details like the X height, how big is the height of the letter, not counting the part that goes above the line, like a, a small D has the part, the round part, and then the part that goes above the line, that's called an ascender. And then, or a P has the part that goes below the line, that's the descender. But if you look at a lowercase x or lowercase n, that's called the x height. And how big is that compared to, in proportion to, the height of the ascender or the height of the descender? I call this being a good type detective. You can if you look at the details and and even though they seem minor and seem small collectively across an entire body of writing all of those details can affect the overall look of that writing yeah and they give you um, and they change readability and absolutely that's very very key so maybe this is a point where you want to talk about text type versus display type because that's another very broad way of categorizing types. Right now, there are approximately 200,000 typefaces digitally available. Wow. If that's, if that's Yes, wow. And more are being created as we speak. Part of the reason for that explosion uh, is that it has never be, been easier to design a typeface Software is widely available. It's fairly inexpensive. Even for lay people, it's something that they never had access to before, and now everyone does. Also, you can now distribute your own typefaces. It used to be that typefaces had to be bought from large conglomerates, and so the means of distribution was very limited and very controlled. Now, you you know, 
David, you could design your own typeface and market it online, and you could call yourself a type designer. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. It, well, it's interesting. We had a guest, Mike Rohde, who did the Sketchnote handbook, and he's doing just that. He does um, a very particular type of what he calls sketchnoting, where he hand takes or diagrams lectures, and he uses a very distinctive hand text, and, and they are turning that into a font that's going to be for sale. I mean, you wouldn't want to see my handwriting as a font, that's that's for certain, but um, I can see where that is happening right before our own eyes. Oh, but just to get back to display versus text, yeah. which is where I was kind of going, of those 200,000 or so typefaces, the vast majority are display typefaces, meaning that they are designed to be read at largish sizes in small quantities, um, so 14-point or larger, and you know, headlines, small batches of text. For lengthy reading, magazines, newspapers, books, you want to use what is called broadly a text typeface, meaning that it has been designed to be read at small sizes and to have smooth and easy legibility and to read at length and not tire your eyes or cause give any undue obstacles. It should be seamless. It should be invisible. So, for instance, using papyrus to do subtitles, that's using a display type to use no, for no, no. text. Display type um, can be used for subtitles because subtitles are very short. Okay. I, so, But the kind of display type that you should use for subtitles would be something that has a lot of weight to it so that the width of each individual stroke can be strongly seen against a moving, complicated background, yeah. a background with lights and darks. So anything that's thin or that has thin parts to it is not suitable for, for reading against uh, that kind of a background. Display and text are very different. This text type is, again, for lengthy reading. For, you know, for, if you're going to sit down and read for 20 or 30 minutes, you want to be sure to have a typeface that is not going to tire your eyes, that, where you're not going to have to think about the reading, where yeah. it happens effortlessly and seamlessly. And, and there is a narrow range of typefaces that is designed to serve that purpose. And that, so I guess a better example would be like the body of an article or the body of a book. You would want that in a simple to read text type. Right. Hence the term body type, yeah. which, which I punned on for the title of my book, which is type on someone's body. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. does it make now, any, Oh, go ahead, David. You, you please. Carry. Well, I, I was just curious. There's been a lot of, especially in the Apple world, you know, talk about retina versus non retina screens and screens versus paper and how retinas are supposedly more like paper, but, and, you know, now Kindle and e-ink and things like that. It, have there been any studies or any thoughts about the distinction between whether different types of text have different readability on those different styles of screen, whether it's retina or non-retina or e-ink or anything like that? I am so glad you brought that up because that is really so important now when so, when so many people are reading on a screen. Um, the screen type, really, the principles for good legibility on a screen are mostly the same as they are for on a reflective surface. In other words, a light-emitting surface would be a screen of some kind. A reflective surface would be where the light is reflecting off the surface, so a typically print uh, piece of paper. Um, so 
you don't light emitting does cause some eye distress. However, a lot of these new devices, what they're attempting to do is to reduce the amount of light that's coming into your eye from the screen. So the only things that I would suggest need adjustment. You still want good contrast. You still want strong, uh, distinctive letter forms. Um, You still want good letting, the space between the lines. You still want good tracking, the space between the letters. Um, You might want a tiny bit more tracking and a tiny bit more letting, and I'm talking about really small increments on screen to counteract the dazzle effect or the, the effect of the light coming into your eye from the screen. So you might want just a a smidgen more space around and between the letters so that legibility is not affected. On a reflective surface, you can get away with a tighter, tighter batch of text. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're talking about the spacing between the characters. Yes. And that is, those are, there are two different terms that we use uh, for you type geeks out there. (laughs) Tracking is when you highlight an overall group of letters. It can be a a page, it can be a paragraph, it could be a line, and you apply uh, spacing to it that is distributed equally amongst all the individual characters. And kerning is when you literally put your cursor in between two specific letters and adjust the space only in that place. And that you typically would only do in when when the type is a little larger because the built-in kerning pairs in in every typeface a good typeface a type designer will spend hundreds of hours adjusting the space between or presetting the space between every possible combination of letters so a a a b a c a d a e etc between every possible combination of letters and that translates to hundreds and hundreds of possible pairings yes a type designer will enter mathematical values that you never see as the end user which ensures that when your type comes out and one letter is next to the other that the spacing between each of those letters gives an overall appearance of evenness. So that is the importance of kerning and tracking. And that deals with like, for instance, you have letter combinations sometimes where if they're not adjusted for kerning, they they look awkward when you put them next to each other. Exactly. They look awkward. This generally happens because someone has already done all the hard work for you at text settings, meaning eight eight points on 10 points, uh, 10 points on 12 points. But when the letters get larger, those space settings don't work quite as well. And that's when a good designer will go in and adjust the space between individual pairs of letters. The idea... The overall idea behind that is to make everything look as if it's evenly spaced so that nothing looks like there's too much space or too little space. Yeah. And and now, now going back to a text type versus a display type, um, I've always been under the impression, and this may be incorrect, that a text type is generally better as a serif font. You There have been many... Um, tests that have been done in the laboratory to measure people's 
reading ease and comfort and speed. And there is a difference between, you are right, there is a difference between serif and sans serif. Although, not, it's not a huge difference, but it's the reason why you don't see books set in a sans serif type. Or you seldom see newspapers or even magazine articles set in sans serif type. So what is it about those serif letters that makes it easier to read? The tiny little distinctions that those little serifs give you. Uh, for example, the difference between an L and an I or an L and an N or an M. The serifs give you that, that tiny little extra bit of descriptiveness that you don't think about it. It all happens at a split second, a hundredth of a second. But it gives you just that little bit more visual information so that you can define what that letter is on the fly. And also another reason that people give why serif letters are more legible when reading quickly a lot of material is that the horizontality of the serifs lead your eye forward from one word to the next, again, at a very quick speed. Okay, so what what does horizontality mean? Um, Well, all the letters, if you look at them, are mostly vertical, okay? An L, an I, an M, an N. They all have the main stroke of that letter is vertical, right? Yeah. But the the serifs are horizontal. And they lead you into the next letter. They lead you forward because we read from left to right. So they they force a kind of a forward flow that helps the eye to navigate forward. Does that that make sense? Now, there's been – I I don't know if there's been research. I'm sure you'll tell us. But I've read some things recently on the internet about how certain types of fonts that maybe would not necessarily be as pleasing to you or I – but can be very helpful for people with certain disabilities. Like there are certain types of uh, fonts that are designed for people who have dyslexia that can help them. What is it about certain fonts that make them easier for um, certain people with certain disabilities to read rather than others? Have you um, done any research in that area? Wow. No, I haven't. But uh, it's very interesting to hear that people are developing things like that. I would imagine that the same characteristics for people with dyslexia, the idea would be to make the shape of the letter immediately seeable. In other words, you know, when children are learning to read, they're first learning to distinguish the shapes of the letters. And so every every part of that letter that, that has a a design characteristic that makes it look different from the letter next to it helps people distinguish one letter from the next. And I would think that the same idea would be for people with dyslexia that the clearer that that letter can be i would say one thing would be the size of the letter would would be probably important at just as children's books are a little larger typeface and the weight of the strokes so in other words if the strokes were very thin it would it doesn't make as much of a visual impression so a weightier stroke would be better although too weighty is not good because then it you can't distinguish the shape inside the letter which also helps you see the letter that's uh, called a counter space. Yeah, like for instance, the space inside the the O. The space inside the O. It can be an enclosed space like inside the O, but every letter 
uh, except for like a v- completely vertical letter like an L, even an M, the space inside the arches, those are also counter spaces. In an E, a lowercase e, for example, the space in- that's completely enclosed is a counter space, but also the space that's almost completely enclosed by the bottom part of the E is also a counter space. So you want to be able to see, you're absolutely right, David, you want to be able to see the spaces the spaces inside the letters and, the, and also the letter itself, and that they need to be in a good harmony and good proportion with one another and distinguishable from one another. You know, it's really, it's really, we think of the letters, we learned them as children, it seems so simple, but it's really not. A tremendous amount of skill and knowledge and testing goes into a good typeface. And people take typefaces for granted just because they're there. You know, you turn on your computer and there are your, you know, in your font list, hundreds of fonts, you don't give them a second thought, but people worked for years and devoted their lives and are specialists in what makes those fonts good and what what they're and makes them good for what they're good for because not all font fonts are good for all things they're, they each have their specific uses but there's tremendous amount that goes into every typeface well, and you know that's really what I took away from your lynda.com series was you know f- number one is I didn't realize how much science is involved with creating typefaces Absolutely. but I also but but I also didn't realize how much art is involved because there is an artistic bent to this as well. It's um, interesting to know that most of the early typeface uh, designers were engineers or or metalsmiths of some kind. Um, they were mostly all men uh, up until more recent times. Uh, and even now, the field is still dominated by men, whether this is a scientific bent, I don't know, I... I I, certainly there are no barriers for women now, and many fabulous typefaces are being designed by women. But it was, it was, it was a science, and it was also an engineering uh, kind of a problem in the days when type was made of metal. It, they had to be, you know, uh, founded or, you know, poured metal. Uh, actually, the word font is a corruption of the word fount, which is, comes from the days when type was poured into metal molds. Can, can you explain for me the difference between the word font and type? Uh, uh, you know, I, I don't really understand, to tell you the truth. <laughs> well, um, uh, they're used – people use those terms interchangeably now. So you're not wrong if you use them interchangeably. However, purists will insist that the difference is that a font is a – specific size of a specific typeface because it, it, it had to exist physically. So a typeface is a design, whereas a font is a physical thing. Now, in the days of bits and bytes, a physical thing exists digitally. But um, So now you can d- discourse intelligently on the difference between them, but in terms of general conversation, you would be equally correct saying font or typeface. So just, but in the circles of people who take this very seriously, do they refer to them as fonts or typefaces? You know, I, there are one or two people I know in my type geek circles who will still make a distinction. But when I heard Jonathan Heffler say that he uses them indistinguishably, I knew that it was okay for me to do that because I consider uh, Jonathan Heffler a rock star in the type world. And if if it's okay with him, it's okay with me. At some point, you need to get over it. There's a similar thing going along with the difference between nerds and geeks. And um, 
<laughs> I think um, I think Merlin Mann once said if you. What is uh, the distinction? I, I don't I'm know. A geek. Like, David's a nerd. Some people no, get I'm very upset if you if you mix them up. I think Merlin said if you're if you're if you if you're hung up over the difference between a nerd and a geek, then you're a nerd. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know something like that. It was very funny, but um, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit about um about uh, legibility and readability. But before the, we do that, let's just go real quick to our next sponsor. Yeah, and our next sponsor for this episode is Fujitsu, and they make the excellent line of scanning products, the ScanSnap line of scanners, or as my mother likes to call them, the SnapScan line of scanners. And I try to correct her every time. But uh, so my mother recently just got a ScanSnap scanner, and she has been loving this thing because she has had the ability um, to go back and completely digitize all of her records. And so what she does is she's got the 1300 set up on her desk and whenever she gets a bill or an invoice or a receipt or anything that she wants to scan, she flips open the top. She, she sucks it through the scan snap. Um, she, I've set her up an Evernote account with a bunch of notebooks. She files an Evernote account and then she just throws it behind her back. And at the end of the session, she's got a whole bunch of stuff in the middle of the floor that's creating quite a pile. And then she picks it up and she tosses it in the garbage can and she finds this all very liberating. Um, and so when I picked up um, the latest model, ScanSnap, I, I also handed my 1300 down to my brother, who's a school teacher, and he has been scanning a lot of records and a lot of documents for classes as well. And he's now trying to develop a paperless lifestyle. So it's really great to see these people who really aren't um, super nerdy, techie people really embracing this paperless lifestyle where – um, if you just give them the opportunity and give them the tools, they will go all for it. So um, there's a great uh, line of ScanSnap scanners, depending on what you want to do. Um, they've all got the document feeders, except for the little 1100, which is just a single sheet feeder. So you can stick all of your documents in. That will take care of all the details. It will scan front and back at the same time. So it will do duplex scanning. Um, if your papers are a little askew, that's okay. It'll grab them and pull them in, and it will make sure that they're all nicely aligned, and it will tell automatically, are they black and white, are they color, what kind of document is this, and it will adjust its scan accordingly. And then you can scan. Do you want to scan to Evernote? Do you want to scan to Dropbox? Do you want to scan to Google Docs? Do you want to scan to a cloud-based service? Do you want to just scan to a folder? And you can tell ScanSnap what you want to do. They, it comes included with OCR software, so you can uh, set up OCR for all of your documents so you can go back and search later. And you're done, and that's it. And then once you're done scanning, you can toss your paper behind your back like your mom does, or you can toss it in the trash can or the shredder um, and just be on your way towards a more paperless life. Yeah, well, thanks, ScanSnap, for sponsoring the podcast. You know, I've recommended a lot of people buy these scan snaps over the years. I've never had anybody come to me and say they were disappointed. In fact, it's just the opposite. They always tell me how much they love it. They've got a product for no matter what you need. They've got a small one. They've got a, a portable one that you can take with you. And they've got a nice big one that can go on your desk. The new iX500 is amazing. And uh, go check it out. Ina, one of the things I thought that was really enlightening in your session for lynda.com was the idea of legibility versus readability, which is something I had never even thought about. Because, well, well, why don't you explain that a little bit? Well, okay, just because you can read something, uh, meaning that you can distinguish the shape of, uh, shapes of the letters and you can actually read it, um, doesn't mean that you necessarily want to read something. Legibility is, can you read it? Uh, is it possible for you to read it? Um, uh, readability is a little bit different, and it's based on 
whether you are invited into the text by the designer making choices that make it easy for you to access the text in different places and in different forms, providing entry points for you to read, arranging the type in such a way that doesn't put a barrier. For example, if you think about a gray page of type, just solid type, no paragraph breaks, no line breaks, that's legible. You can read it. But do you want to read it? No, not really. Or let's just say that it it seems a bit impenetrable. It seems a bit daunting. And so you might choose to skip over it. However, add in a few simple things like a drop cap, a line break, uh, a line of caps to lead into a paragraph, uh, a call out or a pull quote, um, a bit of color perhaps somewhere, certainly an image. Um, There are many ways to make the type more inviting and that way you are, it, it would be, it adds to its readability quotient. Does that explain it? Yeah, exactly. So, so no matter how great the serif font you have is and how readable it is, I guess how legible it how is legible. Would be yes. the way to put it. Uh, if you just put it on a screen, you don't have any spaces between paragraphs, no line indents, and, and you throw that at your reader, it's not very readable. And uh, the idea is you, not only do you need to pick a, an appropriate font or typeface, you also need to spend some time on the way your page looks. Um, another factor is the width of the columns, for example. If your lines are very long, it means that the reader has to find their way back visually along a very long line to find the next where the next line begins. So there are some guidelines that I offer in terms of optimum readability and legibility, and that would be 52 to 70 characters per line. And characters includes uh, punctuation and spaces. So if your lines are longer than that, it's not necessarily bad, but you need to provide then more space between lines. So the adjustment of all these small, the tweaking of these small things, the selection of the typeface, the line length, the tracking and letting... Uh, the space, the space from uh, between paragraphs, all of these things add up to an easier read for the reader and therefore a more inviting and accessible read for the reader. And if you're not paying attention to all of these things, you're putting up barriers between you and your reader that they may not even understand why, but they may not like reading what you've putting in front of them as well. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's semi-subliminal. They're not aware of it. If they thought about it, they might say, "Oh, well, you know, this this is seems like a lot of text," or you know, "Oh, this doesn't. This seems like it would be a lot of work to read this." And so there's a there's a a turnoff kind of thing. Um, so yes, whatever you can do to make your text more accessible and more enjoyable. For the reader, then you're more likely to get somebody to read it. <laughs> and, and that, I thought, led into... I'm sorry, Katie, did I interrupt no, you? No, go ahead. And that, I thought, led into this other great idea you had in your series, and it's called the typographic theory of relativity. <laughs> and is, is that your own phrase? Yes, it is my own I, phrase. I thought it, but I thought it really summarized nicely for me uh, how all this stuff starts to work together, because you start to get an appreciation that there's text type and display type, and that you get an appreciation of making it legible and readable. And then you you kind of, I thought, brought it together in a lot of ways with this theory of relativity. 
Well, the idea is that everything exists in relation to everything else. So that if you change one aspect of your design, you might need to change other aspects of your design because everything that you do affects everything else. So to be sensitive to other things that might be happening. Um, that's what relative. That's what I mean by relativity. That there are page margins. There's space around the edges of the screen. There are other elements that might be too close to the type, or too far away from the type, or be overpowering the type. I mean, you just have to be sensitive to the overall construction and to the totality of it. Yeah, and and also I thought one of the points you made there is that you need to look at the different typefaces and how they relate to one another on the page. Oh, um, yes. Well, this gets back to what we were talking about right at the very beginning of this program, which was using too many typefaces. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, one of the questions I get asked the most is how do I know what typefaces to put together? And again, there's no one answer or one source for this. There are, you can look at it in a lot of different ways. But a general guideline is don't use, you know, using too many typefaces is a surefire mistake. I will say that in, in someone's very capable hands, it can be done successfully. But for 99% of people who are making things with type, it's not a good idea to mix more than two or even possibly three typefaces. And instead, think about typefaces where you have a broad range of weights and widths and slopes. By that, I mean a typeface like Helvetica, for example, that has a broad family of related shapes. They're all Helvetica. So they all go together. But some of the uh, Helveticas, you've not only got bold, you've got ultra bold, you've got extra bold, you've got black. So you've got light, you've got medium, and then you've got widths, which would be referred to the actual widths of every single letter. You've got narrow or compressed or extended or um, expanded. These are a lot of words that you see when you look at the typefaces in your list of fonts. Those terms refer to weight and width. And then, of course, there's slope, italic or oblique. These are two separate things, but they are effectively non-upright letters. So if you stay within one typeface that has a lot of family related family members, it will all go together simply because they all come from one designer and from a common root. Once you start mixing two typefaces, if you must, then you probably want two very different typefaces – um, and something very simple and something that's more complex. So a serif typeface, you're probably going to want to pair that with a, a very simple sans serif typeface. That's going to solve 90% of most people's type design problems or, and needs, I should say, needs. Um, yeah, if you um, – so I'm going to um, ask you to look at maxsparky.com. That's my website. And uh, after watching your, your thing, your, uh, your presentation at Lindy.com, I went back and looked at I was using um, two sans serif fonts, and it was, I thought it really, I could tell it looked kind of funny. So uh, I got you know, serious about looking at the typography on the site, and I mixed um, Myriad for headings, which is a, a serif font. I'm sorry, sans serif Sans serif, yes. And then I, I, I like Myriad. I like Myriad a lot. Yeah, yeah and then... And then I used for um, uh, for my typeface for my body text of my my post. I use I think it's Adobe 
Castellan Pro, I think. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice choice. And that, that's because uh, Squarespace has Typekit, so I was able to use some some decent fonts. Ah. And, but, but the um, what I, what occurred to me at the time was what we really need is a color wheel for fonts. And by that, I mean, you know, like I'm not very smart about colors either, but you can get a color wheel that will give you ideas about colors that work well together. But it sure would be nice if there was some way we could do that for fonts for people like me. But I just don't think it's possible. It's there are too many factors. It's a yeah. color wheel is a color wheel is great because the colors are fairly simple. They are what yeah. they are. Type each typeface embodies a lot of different characteristics. So it would it would be. I mean, it's not impossible, and many people have tried to give guidelines for combining typefaces. And if you search uh, combining typefaces or how to combine typefaces, I mean, you'll find 10 different opinions, and, and they all have valid points. Um, ultimately, a, an educated eye is your best guide. You want um, two things that are different enough from one another. I, I like what you did with MaxSparky.com. Um, I might have had less letting between your lines. It looks like the lines are a little spacey, spaced out. But um, it's a it's a very nice, elegant solution. I think it's very clean, very easy to read. Um, I'm wondering why your type is. Um, it doesn't look like it's 100% black, though, is it? No, it's not. It's not. Yeah. So that brings up another uh, good point about type, which is that. Contrast, high contrast makes for high legibility and high readability. And whenever you change, so black type on a white background is the highest level of contrast. Um, and so that when you start changing either the background by making it darker, slightly darker or slightly more dark, the black doesn't read as well against it. Similarly, if you start changing the black type by making it lighter, it starts to when you when those values start coming closer together, you lose legibility. It's not a problem here because again, the theory of typographic relativity, you've the light the typeface is clear enough, it's big enough, there's enough space around it, the background is light enough, the type is dark enough. But I would say why not make it black? Yeah, you know, that's a good idea. I, I, I did it stylistically, thinking it looked kind of nice being not entirely black, but maybe by the time the show posts, it'll be black. <laughs> yeah, I just went, went to my site and made all my text black, David. You're behind the ball. <laughs> <laughs> so we're getting a consultation in addition to a fantastic guest. I there guess. you go. <laughs> the, uh, well, it, it is interesting because so many of us, and, and you know, one of the amazing things about the world we live in now is that a lot of us now can create that couldn't before. I mean, it used to be you needed to own a newspaper or own a TV network or to do this stuff. But now anybody can build a website. And, and so we need to start being concerned about these kinds of things as we do our own, you know, little micro publishing out in the world. And, and I think that's why uh, the show is really so important that people have a chance to hear about these issues. I think it's great that you're addressing design issues on on your program. It's true. Uh, We are all our own creators now, our content creators. And the more people know about design and typography, the better everything looks. We don't have to, you know, sometimes I am offended not and that's not too strong a word sometimes it's like a slap in the face to me when i see bad typography on a sign or on a website or you know yes i have highly refined sensibilities and so it's it's really upsetting to me maybe more so than it would be to you 
or the average person might not think about it. They might just say, you know, that's kind of ugly, but they might not think about why. But to me, it's, I think to myself, oh, if that person had only done this, this, and this, this could have been beautiful. And it's such a missed opportunity. Yeah. So, I, I um, think that's the case too. Yeah. So, so uh, that's a one great thing about lynda.com is, you know, there exists uh, a great opportunity to educate yourself and uh, for the world to know more about type. And actually the world does know a lot more about type now. When I started in design and I, if I went into a room and asked, uh, you know, 50 people, what's a font? No one would know. Now everyone knows because everybody has fonts on their computer. So it, it is a whole new world where we, everyone has access to everything. And, um, and it's mostly a good thing. <laughs> and what about all the other little things we do to our fonts, like the bold and the italics and the underline? We haven't really talked about all of that. And, oh. and I don't know if there's a technical term for all of the defacing we do to our text. <laughs> Thank you for saying defacing. I really do look at it like that. Um, because there are over 200,000 typefaces available, there is no reason to artificially bold or artificially italicize something. Um, I really happen to hate um, underlining because as a designer, I know there are so many other ways to emphasize text uh, by, make, by bringing in a bolder weight or by changing a color or by bringing in a different uh, font that to me, underlining as a means of emphasis is, is just a sign of an amateur. But worse is uh, to artificially bold or, um, or oblique a typeface because what that does is it completely damages the designer's intent. Imagine a photograph of yourself and someone, you know, uh, stretches it or squashes it or um, defaces it in some other way. It's, it's, an undermining of the intent of the designer. And as I said before, the, the designers of typefaces spend their lives dedicated to making beautiful typefaces. So then when you change it, it's, you're changing a piece of art in a way. Yeah, you are. I get it. I get it. Well, you know, another one is small caps. Uh, I think when people use small caps on a font that's not made for small caps, it looks really mm -hmm. funny to me. Boy, you guys are really bringing up some great points, I have to say. Um, there are so many extended uh, versions of typefaces these days where a typeface will have properly weighted small caps because the glyph palette is now almost infinite. You can build in all of those things and a good typeface and you may say, why should I pay for this typeface? You know, Typefaces should be free. Well, somebody... Because a lot of work will go into a good typeface, and one thing that you will see is properly weighted small caps and fractionals that blend into the body of the text in a harmonious way. Those of us who know type can immediately spot fake small caps. Um, and again, it just it looks less than professional when you make caps small because their weight is not proportional to the rest of the letters because you've really reduced the size of the type and kept it within other type around it, which is another size. So all, everything changes. The weight of the verticals, the weight of the horizontals, the weight of the cur the weight, the curves are weighted. So yes, um, this gets, you know, this gets down into the nitty gritty, what you're talking about, but it's important. 
Well, it, it, I think it's something that a lot of people just aren't aware of. Like the underlining thing is a really good point. I never really thought about underlining. We use it in legal briefs all the time. And then I read Matthew Butterick's book, um, uh, with Typography for Lawyers. I don't know if you're familiar with that one or not. You know, I am somewhat familiar. He actually has written and spoken very eloquently about type. And, you know, my husband is a lawyer, so he said to me, yes, but legal briefs are only read by judges and maybe the opposing counsel. And, you know, you the, and these are you can't use other fa- typefaces. You have to use certain typefaces. It's expected, and this is the format. You know, that's a very specialized use. And I, I think there is a point to be made that Times New Roman, which is kind of a very neutral, kind of a beige, if you will, for lawyers, um, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, and underlining in that context, no one expects a specialized typography to be employed. But even where you make your line breaks and, you know, small visual cues can matter. I would say that underlining in a legal brief is not is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, but it really doesn't look that good. And, you know, after reading his book, I started using bold, uh, you know, when I needed to really emphasize something. And it, I think it looks better. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that, too. No, but I think it does look better. Um, it does look better. And- uh, it's not coming under the critical eye of the typographically, the cognoscenti, you know, but that's okay. And, but, the, but, you know, and the fact is judges are not typographic, you know, experts, at least the vast majority of them are not. Um, but, you know, I am writing something to try and convince somebody to do something and it needs to, to look nice. And I think that a brief that uses smart typography and doesn't use the exact same font 99% of the people exactly. do in the business do – it stands out, and I think it's definitely something that lawyers need to be worried about. But I don't want to make this all show about lawyers and typography, but uh, that's just one example of how this all fits together. May I make a suggestion? Yeah, please. I really, really like the typeface Georgia, it, mm. although it was designed for web use by the fabulous, brilliant uh, Matthew Carter, who won a MacArthur Genius Grant in 2010 for his uh, type design, a lifetime of type design. It is actually quite effective on the printed page. It gives a sense. It, it is an, it. It is a transitional typeface which has a kind of a, authority, a quiet, strong authority about it. It is not used in the majority of the things that you see, and it. It's really try it out on a page instead of your whatever you're using for your legal briefs next time, and you will see that it. It just. It has a lot of gravitas. That's a good one. I'm gonna. Okay. I, I I do use Georgia sometimes. I think it is a nice looking font. Uh, I want to say one thing about Georgia. It does not. Uh, the basic form of Georgia, which is free on most people's computers, has a very limited palette of weights and um, slope. But uh, for a very very little money, you can buy um, a very extended family of Georgia, which has a lot of weights and widths. So it has a a, a broad um, family that if you needed a lot of different kinds of typographic differentiation and staying in one family so that you would know it would all look together, it, it is available. Hey, I want to talk about some more specific recommendations for fonts and a couple more fonts that we love to hate. Uh, but before I do that, I'm going to talk about our, our sponsor, Squarespace. Uh, Squarespace is everything you need to make an amazing website. They're a um, fully hosted and completely managed environment for creating and maintaining a beautiful website, blog, or portfolio. 
This means that no matter how experienced you are with building websites, you can build something amazing in minutes without having to worry about hosting, scaling, or integration. They've got beautiful, clean templates. They've got everything uh, in the platform that's drag and drop. Everything is integrated. Um, they've got great fonts, just as we've been talking about. Uh, Max Barkey has all the fonts from Squarespace. The layout engine is their own page builder, which allows you to create custom layouts for each of your pages in seconds. You can add blocks of content, such as photos, videos, text, social media content, and tons more. You don't have to worry what your site will look like on a mobile device because it restructures itself automatically uh, to fit on every device, and it looks beautiful and maintains the site's design. If you like stats, you've got all the stats you can think of there. There are even iOS and Android apps that let you manage and post on the go, which is really handy. Uh, you can even import your current content from your current blog, and it easily sets up sharing and syncing and with all your social media accounts. So when you sign up for a year of Squarespace, you get a free custom domain name, and it's uh, $10 a month for the standard plan, $20 a month for the unlimited plan. But if you take a whole year, you get 20% off that. And uh, if you get two years, you get 25%. And if you pay month to month, you can link your custom domain. There's no credit card required to try out. Simply go to squarespace.com slash MacPowerUsers and start your trial. Now, if you decide to purchase, uh, there's a little button that says enter an offer code. It's not obvious, but enter the offer code MPU3 and you get an additional 10% off. So we can get you a lot off that. Um, you can set up a great site. Like I said, it's got some fantastic typography if you want to put up a website and not have to fiddle with this stuff. So go check it out and thank Squarespace for sponsoring the site. Yeah, and I've got to admit, David, even while we've been recording the show, it, it's so easy to change and customize a template on Squarespace. I've been fiddling with mine a little bit and changing um, some of the fonts and changing some of the uh, color of the, of the text on the on the site. <laughs> Motivated yeah. by Ina. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Ina, we've talked a little bit about some fonts that are, are good choices. Like I think Georgia is a good idea. Um, I don't want to focus too much on lawyerly stuff, but lawyers always use Times Roman. Even some of the court rules mandate Times Roman. Yes, I know that and, from my husband. <laughs> and I think that's because lawyers would submit briefs with things like, you know, the modern equivalent of San Francisco and the judges said, no, we got to get, this is crazy. But, you know, I don't use Times Roman. I haven't for a long time. And even in courts that mandate Times Roman, and I've never had a judge say this is not an acceptable typeface because, you know, I use an adult typeface that looks good. It's a, uh, it's a serif font and it's very readable. But um, I bet uh, most judges don't know. Well, exactly. And, and and that's something we're going to talk about in a minute. But like the the one that the font that everybody seems to love is Helvetica. I mean, it even has a movie after it. I don't know any other font that has a movie based after it. Well, there should be a movie for every font. <laughs> <laughs> I love the movie Helvetica. I've probably seen it a dozen times and I have the deluxe version that has 90 extra minutes of interviews. <laughs> I know a lot of the people in that movie. I bet uh, you do. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Are you in the movie? I, I watch it, but now that I think... I'm not in the movie, no. Uh, well, you should I'm have not. been. <laughs> I would have been happy to have been in the movie, but it's a great movie. I re I recommend it to everyone because it does... It, it's a it's a great story. There's drama. There's controversy. There's, you know... Uh, you realize... It makes you realize that Helvetica is everywhere. It is just everywhere. And uh, and it it sharpens your eye. I like the idea that people are looking at type as much as possible. I love that scene in the movie where he goes into the room with like the original proofs and it's like um, 
Oh, yeah, the vaults. It's like a church, you know. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. It's like a museum, really. Yeah. Uh, those are the museum vaults of the original uh, drawings of, uh, of Helvetica. Yeah. So why, why is Helvetica such an important font? Well, it, it is the perfect sort of neutral um, baseline typeface because it, it can be and do anything. And I think that's the type of – that's what you get from the movie. You get the sense that it can be anything. It's, you bring to it what you will and Helvetico can be everything for you. It, it also has a certain uh, provenance. Uh, it, the movie came out for its 50th anniversary. It has withstood the test of time. It has a large family. Um, because it can be used for American Airlines and it can be used for uh, American Apparel for underwear and everything in between. It can be used for the IRS and the Department of Sanitation. There's something about it that um, because it, it's just kind of a baseline, I don't know what else to say about it. It can be used by anyone for anything. Now, I'd like, I'd like to contest, contrast Helvetica with Ariel. Well, people feel like Ariel is a kind of fake Helvetica. If you go in, and again, if you're a good type detective and you start looking at the details of Ariel, it's kind of a, a poor person's copy of Helvetica. It just doesn't have the elegance of detail, uh, the consistency of weight. It just doesn't – there's a kind of perfection about Helvetica where every letter fits perfectly next to every other letter that Ariel just doesn't have. And um, they are very, very close to one another. Um, you really have to look to tell them apart. But people who know about type know the difference. And Helvetica has a refinement that Ariel just doesn't have. And I think some of it is just kind of – a bit of anger, really, that, you know, Ariel was so based on Helvetica. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of copyright infringement and piracy and the world of type is, uh, may seem like a calm, peaceful world where everyone gets along. But in fact, um, there, there's been a lot of litigation. There's been, um, there was a Supreme Court decision that you cannot copyright a typeface. And, uh, as a result, uh, there's there's kind of there's a kind of honor code that not everyone abides by. Students, unfortunately, think it's fine to just steal typefaces. There are sites set up uh, like Duffont.com, which are f- full of free typefaces. And uh, I guess it's if someone wants to give you something for free, fine. But um, you will know that a lot of those typefaces don't have the fine tuning and the. Ref- the, the essential details and functions that you will find in a fully functional, fully formed typeface from a very good type designer. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a lot of piracy among fonts, is my understanding as well, is that fonts are one of the – or were. I don't know if it's the case now, but were one of the most <laughs> – Pirated things on the internet, but I guess before the MP3s yeah. came around. Yeah, now everything's pirated to such a degree. Um, but yes, it's been a problem. It's been a problem since the earliest days of, of digital typefaces. And uh, there's been, as I said, there was a, a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, and now, didn't Arial came up with kind of the rise of fonts on computers? And I don't know this for a fact. I should research this. But I thought that it was kind of one of these things. They didn't want to use Helvetica probably for licensing fees issues. Yeah. So they yes. came up with Arial. And, there was uh, a 
that. And there was a lot of people um, taking a typeface, changing a few small details, renaming it, and then reselling it. And um, that's, it's unethical. I I don't know what else to say, but um, it's, it's still done. And uh, um, I think there's, Amongst designers now, there there is more awareness and there's more pride in using things that are uh, properly acquired and credited. Um, I wish it were a perfect world, but um, it's not a perfect world in the music world. It's not a perfect world in the film world. The world of photography is full of uh, um, appropriation, unethical appropriation, and it's it's true of type. It's a creative product, and as such, it's uh, subject to the all of the forces of evil, just like other creative yeah. products. Yeah, I, I One of the things that I think is cool about these font companies is they, they call them foundries. And, yeah. you know, it really feels, you know, it goes back to the roots of typography, but, you exactly. know, this, this foundry of type. And uh, there are some really amazing ones out there if you start looking around on the Internet. Well, I would say that if you want to look in one place, uh, one uh, air place that aggregates many, many, many foundries is uh, myfonts.com. And that's a great place to start looking. And they also have some uh, very interesting ways of categorizing typefaces with words that a lay person can understand. So if you want a script face that's playful, for example, you can look up playful and you'll get, you know, hundreds of examples of playful script typefaces or a a child friendly or, um, you know, or a uh, black letter or punky. You know, you can look up words within and it, and it will categorize typefaces for you. And they have, oh, at last, it's probably around 75,000 typefaces um, aggregate from all different foundries on myfonts.com. Yes. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. I, I wasn't aware of this site. This is a great place to go buy them. So yeah. then, like I was looking, maybe I'll go buy an expanded version of Georgia there. Uh, yeah. If I decide to give it a try, like you were you were talking about, you know, one of the types I use is, and something we haven't discussed this, this far in the show, and I don't remember if you t- discussed this or not in the Lynda.com series, was monospace fonts. Oh, and, I noticed that you uh, were interested in that. Um, I'm just curious, why are you interested in monospace fonts? It, it's in, I know I know a lot of people don't like them, right? Um, and I He's never such odd duck. I, yeah, I'm weird. I'm a weirdo, but when I, I I write a lot, and I find that using a monospaced font for my drafting when I write, whether it's a legal brief or an article or a book or anything, um, I I think that the proofreading and the the text itself usually comes out better because I I don't miss anything. Like you know, when you've got a proportionally spaced font and a comma is is very small and it's in there and I just don't find it works that well. So I write everything in these monospace fonts. <laughs> and then when I get, I finish kind of the rough draft and I do the initial proofread, then I switch it over to something like Georgia. And then yeah. I find that reading it in the different typeface makes it almost like a different document to me. And I right. don't, and then you spot different things. Ex- that you, yeah, exactly. So I, I never publish in monospace font, right, right. but I always do my writing in them. And, uh, it is a weird thing. I, I think a lot of people think I'm a weirdo for a lot of reasons, but that's that's just one more of them. Well, you know, I, I you gave a very good explanation. I can see where you could see a comma or a small piece of punctuation that occupies the same space as every other letter. It might not be pretty, but it gives everything a kind of equal weight. And 
if that works for you, that's fine. <laughs> I love uh, the way you said that. I just love it. <laughs> but I ain't doing it. No, I'm just. <laughs> um, um, it, it maybe did you? Are you used to you know the the days of the typewriter? I don't want to ask. Is is that you know? Well, do you maybe. Harken, yeah. Do you harken back to the days <laughs> of the typewriter? And maybe it gives you kind of, some kind of comfort to see it in in that. I don't know. I, I really, um, I do find that writing in a monospace font for my rough drafts uh, means that the product comes out better. And and I do think it's partly that transition. When I move it over to a proportionally spaced font and then start reading it again, I catch things I didn't catch before. And I, I just think maybe that's just a different layout. Maybe if I switched from a serif to a sans serif, I'd have the same effect. But uh, that's just kind of the way I do things. And, and that there's some other kind of that carries over into some other areas like email. Um, I've always been a fan of sending plain text emails because, you know, there's when you start putting HTML emails, it, it can cause problems. And, you know, there was a, a time when that was a very uh, a way to get viruses and other other issues. So I've always stuck with plain text email over the years. But so often that displays as a monospace font, too. Yes, I, I'm fine with that. You know, an email is, uh, they're short, they're utilitarian, and no one expects them to be beautiful. Um, I know, you would think that I, of all people, would want to uh, beautify and stylize my, the typography in my emails, but honestly, I, I don't. I don't. I use, I use the regular you know, HTML text myself uh, because I worry about how someone's going to get it and how it's going to look, and it, it's just... It's just like plain vanilla to me. Yeah. It's much better than sending an email in Comic Sans. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you never have to worry about making that mistake if you send plain text email, I guess. Yeah. The um, uh, What are some of your kind of – for someone listening to the show that wants to write letters and maybe do a little bit of stuff on the web, what are some of the good go-to fonts they can they can look at for using? Well, in the serif uh, family, um, I'm a classicist, uh, with the exception of Georgia, which is a fairly new typeface that was, uh, as I said, designed for the web by Matthew Carter, commissioned by Microsoft, believe it or not. Um, and, and I love Georgia for web and for print. Um, that would be my top favorite. But um, any of the s- solid, historical, uh, these are typefaces that have um, made it into the digital age because of their usefulness, their beauty, their, uh, I would say, Baskerville, Caslon, uh, are certainly Garamond. Um, these are the, the workhorses of, um, of the serif, of the text type world, the serif type world. Yeah, I've always been kind of a fan of Garamond. I, I think it's a, a pretty font. Um, it's tricky because there are a gazillion Garamonds. Uh, different foundries issued different versions of Garamond, and since Garamond it is from several hundred years ago, these versions were cr- recreated from uh, prints, not necessarily directly from the metal type. So it became a matter of interpretation based on how it print the, the quality of the ink, the quality of the paper, the the condition of the printed piece. So you can understand that. Um, recreating something that was originally created in metal hundreds of years ago, there might be some room for interpretation. Bodoni, for example, uh, there are original samples of Bodoni in libraries in Italy, and people have gone there and researched. And uh, yes, we have a Bodoni from Adobe today. We have a, a Bodoni from different foundries that are have very slight differences. Um, 
certainly Bodoni, Dido, these are uh, these are typefaces that I go to again and again. Uh, in the sans serif world, um, I really do love uh, Myriad. Actually, is one of my top favorites. The one that you're using on your on your site. Um, certainly, uh, Helvetica. Yeah. <laughs> um, Universe is a huge, huge family. I think there are 62 different members of, of the Universe family. Um, I like Frutiger. I like Avenir. Um, I, I do like Verdana, um, also designed by Matthew Carter for Microsoft. Um, now, so that, now, Ver- Verdana is one of those, I believe, was designed for use on a computer screen. Yes, yes. This is what I'm saying. By Matthew Carter, commissioned by Microsoft for yeah. the computer. Uh, they, they commissioned him to do Georgia for the computer and Verdana for the computer. And uh, so I think Verdana works uh, very well. Futura is, is a very stylized geometric sans serif for certain things. The caps in particular are very beautiful. The A and the M have pointed apexes and uh, the, you know, the O's are perfect circles. The G is perfect. It doesn't have the spur on the bottom. Again, it depends what you're using it for, not for extended text. Yeah. Well, those are very helpful tips. And, and, you know, the thing is, I think Microsoft Word for a lot of people is where they, they got first exposed to this. So they've picked up on the two or three recommended in there and they've never really explored beyond that. So I, I hope one thing people get out of the show is they'll, they'll take a look at the typography they're using in their own life and add some of their own personality to it. Absolutely. And, you know, one simple way is just to take a piece of text, take a letter, take whatever, a paragraph, and then set it in eight or nine different typefaces and print it out or put it on your screen and have a look at how what is different about them. And you will see that there is a slightly different character. There's a slightly different emotion. There's a slightly different effect. And to feel people should feel that they have the ability to change how their type is how their text and their content is perceived simply by being paying attention to how they're using type i think that's an empowering thing yeah it, it really is in like a, the font book application on the mac which comes on every mac yes uh, it does a really good job of displaying them and just clicking through you can see does, the various yes. Fonts and you can buy additional font applications. I know there's some very powerful ones out there, but I find font books just fine. And then the you know, pro- for most people, font book is going to be more than enough for designers who are working with thousands of typefaces. For example, they may have clients, you know, a hundred different clients, and for each client, there there are ten different fonts that they use from time to time. There are more powerful um, font agent pro is one uh, suitcase. There are um, Font Explorer uh, um, is another one. They offer higher um, levels of font of categorization and sorting. Um, but most people really who are listening to this program are not going to need any of those things. Fontbook is actually a very powerful uh, piece of software that everybody gets on their Mac. Yeah, and the process of installing fonts on a Mac is really simple. You right-click and install font. I mean, it's it's not difficult. So... Um, this is stuff isn't hard to get into, and uh, I hope everybody listening uh, goes and learns a little bit more. Uh, Ina's Lynda.com course is a great place to start. Um, I, I'm going to go ahead and order your book, uh, this, uh, this Typography Essentials book, so hopefully I'll 
be more knowledgeable the next time you and I talk about okay, this Okay, well, you were uh, pretty good. I'm, I'm really looking forward to learning some more about this stuff, so I'm going to put that in the show notes as well. I uh, wanted to mention that I'm doing three more courses for lynda.com, which will debut next year, so for a little more advanced look at typography. Oh, excellent. That's, a, that's another good good reason to go check out lynda.com and then i'm also going to put in this uh, matthew Butter- butterick book um it's very nietzsche for attorneys i think but uh it's something that i thought was very helpful to me um but i know i thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk to us about all this stuff um i think this is a show that i've been thinking about we've been doing the show now what is it three or four years now katie it's been a while and I've been wanting to do a typography show forever, and I always felt like, number one, I didn't have enough knowledge to do an intelligent show about it, and I didn't know the right guest. And watching your uh, lynda.com series solved both problems for me. Oh, so. well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Katie, and thank you, David, for inviting me because I love talking about type. So I am just happy to to share with everybody, and I hope it um, excites your listeners to um, think about type and look at type more carefully and make a good type of part of their lives. Yeah, well, like I said at the beginning, I really believe that Apple people, especially Mac users, um, are all interested in this at some level, and they just needed a little shove. So this is the purpose of the show, and everybody, let us know what you're doing with typography, and uh, maybe we'll do a follow-up show on it in the future. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. That was a lot of fun speaking with Ina about typography. We do have a lot of feedback, though, and some of it's really good. I wanted to get it out to the listeners, so we're going to cover that as well. So this will be a little bit longer show. Before we do that, though, let's talk about Transporter, our final sponsor today. Transporter solves a key problem in the world of storage, how to share collaborating backup data between different locations without storing that data in the cloud. And what you get with the Transporter is a small device that can go wireless or plug directly into your Ethernet. And I frankly recommend you plug into your Ethernet. And it gives you storage that is accessible from anywhere. So, for instance, uh, I can take a transporter and put it at a relative's home, and then I can see that that storage from my Mac at my home. And what that means is I can finally have a reliable way to do offsite storage that doesn't involve a lot of driving and swapping drives. So I can get some new pictures or where at tax time I can dump a bunch of data onto that drive at a relative's home and I'm going to have a reliable offsite backup. More importantly, if I ever decide I, I want to make sure that data is not available anywhere, I can just call her up and tell her to pull the plug. So you get the advantage of cloud storage, but you get the control of having uh, the drive in your own possession. Uh, And and what's cool about this is you're sitting in your house. I don't know how many, but miles away from where this transporter is sitting in your relative's house, right? Yeah, exactly. And I can update it every time. Every time I add new pictures, we have a family event. uh, I can send those pictures to that offsite drive and have an offsite backup of my photographs and family video uh, at the time I put the stuff on my computer. So it doesn't involve waiting a period. Like what I used to do before the transporter came into my life was I would drive over there, pick up the drive, drive it back to my house. So then I didn't have offsite storage while I had the drive back at my house. And then it'd take me a week or two to go through the process of making a fresh backup of everything onto that and get the drive back over to their home. So for a long time during that period, I didn't have a offsite backup. And then once it's at their home, 
anything that happens between then and the next time I go pick it up doesn't get to that offsite storage. So this is a more reliable uh, solution. It's always backed up offsite and uh, it's much easier to get it there. So like I said, it, as soon as I upload the images, I put them onto the transporter drive. It's a it's a really great solution. And that's a personal use. Uh, professionally for my law firm, we're going to start doing that as well with an offsite storage at my home from the office. So once again, we've got an offsite backup storage. Um, client files aren't going up to Dropbox. They're at this thing at my house, which I can unplug at any time I want. And that's just one of the uses for the transporter. Yeah, I was talking to my IT guys. We got this bill uh, and they they started us using, because I said, guys, we got to get in the cloud. We got to get in the cloud. We got to get offsite backup. This is ridiculous. We can't have our only copy of the data with our backup hard drive sitting on top of our only copy of the data. That's just ludicrous. So we finally started this process of industrial strength designed for you know, companies and, you know, they, something special, special about it, blah, 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 that we had to use this particular company. And I get the bill. We have $400, no joke, worth of overage fees because we went over whatever plan we had been signed up for in, you know, whatever particular month that we had been doing. And I called up my tech guys and I said, this is absolutely insane. We are not doing this. Why are we doing this? And so I I told them about the transporter device. I, I sent the tech guys a link to the filetransporter.com website, and they said, take a look at this. For what we have paid in overage fees just getting our data up to this site, we could have bought a couple of these transporters and been done with it, see if this type of solution will work. And they said, whoa, I mean, not only would something like this work for what you're doing, you know, I can think of a half dozen uses off the top of my head where this would work for other clients that they're they're working yeah. on. So. I I'm had like, the same conversation with my IT people. Now they're selling them to every lawyer in the land. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, know, can I have my 400 bucks back? Yes, but your overage fee was $400. For $400, you could get a two terabyte transporter. And um, so it's a transporter device with a two terabyte drive in it. And frankly, if you use the Mac Power Users Discount, uh, you get a discount off that. So you get it cheaper than your overage fee. So it really is a great solution. Um, the, the thing we haven't talked about it is sharing. And the next time we do an ad spot, we're going to talk about that. Because uh, in addition to having this great off-site solution, you can also connect multiple people to this shared storage. And uh, it works really fantastic for that as well. So uh, we're going to talk about that one next time. But for now, your off-site solution is the transporter. Go check it out. Use the Mac Power Users discount. We're going to put a link into the show notes, and uh, and you're going to solve a lot of problems. Yeah, and we should say that coupon code, by the way, is MPU, all caps. Okay, I'm sorry. I thought it was Mac Power Users. Okay, MPU, no. all caps. And you get a, a discount off the device, and you're set to go. So yeah. thanks, uh, Transporter, for sponsoring the Mac Power Users. Katie, we do have a bunch of feedback. I know the show's gone long, but you know what? The stuff is good, so stick around and let's listen to some feedback real quick. Um, I, I never cease to be amazed by how smart the people are to listen to our show. Uh, one of the things that happened is we got called out from the iPad show about not talking about uh, one of the important differences between cellular and, um, and Wi-Fi-only mantle. Yeah, that's true. You know, I... I have always had, well, you know, that's not true. I do have a cellular uh, iPad, but I talked about that I didn't really use the cellular all that much. And maybe next time I would just get a Wi-Fi version. And Jay came back and he said, um, you know, Wi-Fi is great, but especially if you're thinking about getting that iPad mini, the cellular version of the iPad has a lot more. We didn't talk about how the cellular version has the GPS functionality. So yeah, while you can use the cellular data connection on your iPhone and Tether, 
Um, what you won't get is all of the GPS functioning. And especially if you're going to use the iPad in your car or the iPad as a navigation device, um, you're going to lose all that GPS goodness. Yeah. And so if you want GPS, you need to get yourself the cellular version of the iPad. Um, we got some email. At some point I was talking about AirPrint, and I didn't realize this, but HP and some of the other network-connected printers store prints of the mem- in memory, and they're accessible to anyone uh, you know, that's available to the network. So if you've got a uh, sensitive information you're sending to your printer through one of these air printers, you may want to be careful. There's a, there's a YouTube show about it. I'm going to put it in the links. Yeah, you know, I vaguely remember this being an idea, uh, an, an issue when we got rid of our copy machines at the office as we had to get some kind of certification that the memory in the copy machines had been wiped. So, yeah, again, yeah. it is an issue. Um, I've talked to, we talked in our security show about possibly using a disposable email address for additional security. And, um, you know, that way you, you won't have the issue where someone is trying to use your email to reset your password. And ideally, if you could send all of your password resets to a unique email, preferably one that you have two-factor authentication on, that it would be a better solution. Um, you know, the problem is, is that most places use the email address that you use to sign up with as your password reset email. And if that's your everyday email address, that's a problem. And it is, and I didn't really have a great solution for that unless you have a site that allows you to specifically set a different email address as your recovery email address. Um, some sites do, most sites don't. And then Randy wrote in saying that he thought he had the perfect solution for my backup email account, and he has a paid Yahoo account that allows you to create disposable email accounts. Since he doesn't want to give out his real email account or worry about anybody hacking that account, um, the he uses his real email account to log into the Yahoo account but um, then they have disposable email accounts that you can use for these kind of one-off uses. Um, I personally don't know. I don't use Yahoo for email, so I'm not real sure how these how these work. Where if you needed to, if someone compromised your main Yahoo account's email address, could they get the information in the disposable accounts? I don't know if it's set up like email aliases, like like Apple's are. In in which case, all that information would be readable by someone who had access to your primary account. Um, but I'm just throwing it out there as an idea. Yeah, if it works, it's it is a good solution. Um, we continue to get feedback about photography, and you can tell how important that is to people by the amount of feedback we're seeing. Um, uh, one idea that got sent to us um, from Quentin was uh, using this little application called PhotoStream to folder. Because I talked about how I do like using PhotoStream, and he found this little utility that copies everything from PhotoStream out to a folder. I thought that was a, a really good idea. I haven't downloaded it yet and given it a shot, but I, I think uh, it wouldn't be that difficult. And it seems like a pretty smart use. Yeah, and you know, I've been talking about this Alaska trip that I've got coming up in a couple of months, and we talked about the um, Seagate wireless hard drive that I saw at Macworld that I was thinking might be a good solution because it would allow me not only to store movies and entertainment and things like that for the plane that we could use to stream to all of our four family iPads that we're taking with us on this trip. And it is a long flight up to Anchorage from Florida, let me tell you. Um, But that I could then use that hard drive um, for a dual purpose that when I'm up in Alaska, I could use the camera connection kit to offload the pictures we take from my camera's SD card to the iPad and then transfer from the iPad to the Seagate hard drive. Um, and Todd wrote in and wondered whether or not that's going to work because he said Seagate says that photos on the device's camera roll can be moved to the unit, but photos added to the iPad through the camera connection kit, can they be moved to the camera roll? 
And that's a good question. Um, I specifically talked about this workflow with the Seagate folks at Macworld. They seem to think that it was fine. Um, and I seem to recall that things that you add from the camera connection kit get added to the camera roll. But um, that is definitely something that I'm going to check out. If anybody knows for sure, please let me know. I've reached out to Seagate to ask for confirmation and to see if I can get a unit to test and see if this is going to work before. And uh haven't heard anything from them, but uh, we'll see. And if anybody knows, let me know. Well, Katie, I think that should do it. Um, how do you find us? All right. Well, you can find links to everything we talked about in this show on our website at MacPowerUsers.com or at 5x5.tv slash MPU. Um, and this is show 128. Yep, so it's mpu slash 128. You can also email us, David. Yeah, so send an email to feedback at macpowerusers.com or contact us through Twitter or app.net now. We're on both, uh, at MacPowerUsers. And uh, Katie's at Katie Floyd, and I'm at Max Berkey. Yep. And uh, thanks to our sponsors for this episode. That is Connected Data, 1Password, Squarespace, and Fujitsu. And we will see you next time with another show. And thanks, everybody, for sticking around. Thank you.